0: And welcome to the Warton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armassa. In this great episode, I sit down with legendary tech entrepreneur and venture capitalist, Fabrice Brinda, founding partner at FJ Labs, a stage agnostic VC that focuses on marketplaces and consumer facing startups. Born and raised in France, Fabrice is among the world's leading tech leaders. As an investor, he has over 250 exits on 700 investments, with impressive investments such as Alibaba, Lending Club, Delivery Hero, Betterment, Klarna, Stripe, Palantir, Rappi, and many more. As entrepreneur, Fabrice co-founded OLX, one of the largest websites in the world with over 300 million unique visitors per month. Having previously founded Zingy and Auckland, two highly successful sites. In this episode, we discuss Fabrice's fascinating background, investing during COVID and why FJ Labs never stopped backing companies during the pandemic and why early stage investing is actually better during crisis. FJ Labs investing strategy and the kind of team and company look for, why he loves building and investing in marketplaces, fintech trends and verticals Fabrice is excited about, and some of the common traits he's observed in successful fintech founders, investing mistakes, why he knew he was going to regret passing on Uber, but did it anyway, why he's excited about the democratization and explosion of tech in Latin America, and just a lot more. And now join me in a great conversation with Fabrice Grinda. Well, Fabrice, welcome to the Wartime Fintech Podcast. Uh, how's it going today, man? Doing very well. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's good to see you again. And uh, I think um, every time I've, I've talked to you, you're in a different place. So you, you, you definitely hop around a lot.
1: You know, I, the beauty of living in, the, in this uh, world in 2021 where everyone else has been, I guess I was an early adopter of Zoom and I was already working on Zoom and Zoom-like Frankly, from 20 years ago, I started having distributed teams for my companies in the mid-2000s. All my tech teams were ready in Buenos Aires and all around the world. I mean, OLX you know, was in 35 countries, right? Like, So when I was running OLX, I was already like flying from Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, to Delhi, to Cape Town, to you name it. So life hasn't changed that much, and uh, I make the most uh, of uh, the work-play-life balance uh, around the world.
0: Yeah, and I remember March of 2020, when the pandemic was really hitting the world, FJ Labs continued investing almost at the same rate, right? You didn't skip a beat.
1: Yeah, the thinking there and the, the reasoning is, if you look at the most interesting companies of the last decade, they were all created in the 8 09 financial great recession. And to me, it's no... It's no coincidence. It's, it's a, a number of factors. One is the opportunity cost decreases. So it's not as though you have these high paying jobs uh, elsewhere that you could stay at. So more and more people consider things like entrepreneurship and be the number of new ideas. And there's an acceleration disruption. What pandemics do and what crises in general do is they accelerate underlying trends. And we already had a massive underlying trend over more digitization, more digitization of everything from healthcare to education to food delivery to commerce in general to fintech or finance. But the pandemic accelerated dramatically. And so we saw more and more opportunities. And the reality is, when you're investing early, like we do in seed or A or B, or pre-seed even, the macroeconomic environment you're investing in is not relevant. What matters is the macroeconomic environment a decade in the future when those companies exit. And so, if anything, it's actually better to invest in crises because labor is more available. The customer acquisition costs typically go down. And that was true both for consumer facing companies and for B2B companies because there are people to pick up the phone because they were not traveling. And so the CACs went down, the, the conversion and the penetration went up. So, it was actually an amazing time to invest. And yes, I remember very clearly that most people were afraid to invest in March or April, but our perspective, and we were fortunate enough that we still had enough liquidity that we could invest, was those are the best times. I mean, think of 08, 09. That's when Airbnb and Uber were created. That's when Slack and WhatsApp uh, uh, all were created or came of age. And so all the best companies the coming decade will have either been created or come of age during the pandemic. And also the circumstances of these crises allowed the creation of these companies. I mean, all of a sudden in 08, 09, you had a lot of people that needed extra income, which meant they were willing to sublet their place on an Airbnb, which they were not willing to do before. They felt icky letting people in their places, or they were willing to take a second job uh, driving cars, which they were not willing to do before. So... The pandemics and I mean, as horrible they, as they are for the world and crises in general, I mean, there's a lot of human suffering. Actually, or periods of opportunity and periods that ultimately lead to productivity growth.
0: Yeah, and even a, a company like Square, right? I think was founded in 09 uh, a financial company in the middle of financial crisis. But th- let's take a step back for because you've been through several cycles and crises. But you know, you started your first company early, right after school. But you did have a couple of years in, in big corporate, right? And that was McKinsey. Did you know you were going to probably launch your own firm going into McKinsey?
1: Oh, I, I knew I wanted to be in tech before I even went to college, right? Like, so I started playing with computers when I was ten. I got my first PC in '84. Uh, I was ten years old. I started learning a program and assembling computers. And I built a BBS. And I knew had a program. And so when I went to college, I didn't study computer programming computer science I decided to study economics because I already knew how to program so I'm like okay and and economics made sense to me because the it explained the way the world worked it was uh it, if I took a step back it was like kind of the structure or incentive systems seemed to suggest why things were the way they world better than any other mechanism so I studied economics and when I graduated I had three choices so I graduated top of my class in 96 and I was like okay I can go build a startup, but I'm 21, I don't really need, know what I'm doing, uh, most likely I'm going to fail. I could join a startup, and I did, and I was interested in tech, uh, but I'm like, they're not going to take me seriously because I'm young and inexperienced. Or I can go to a place like McKinsey, and it's kind of like business school, except they pay you. And I chose option three. The reality is all three would have been okay. Uh, if I had to do it again, I'd probably just go to San Francisco and go build a startup. But I was a shy, introverted kid. And so I learned how to work in teams. Uh, I improved my oral and communication skills. I improved uh, my ability to analyze businesses. But after two years, I felt I'd learned what I needed to learn. I thought I would miss the bubble doing that, but I didn't. So at 23 and 98, I went on and built my first tech startup.
0: And you were one of the first ones, or at least you were definitely early, in this trend that we're seeing today of Taking an idea that works in one place and localize it and replicate it elsewhere, right? When, when did you realize that was that was a winning strategy? The
1: so it's not the preferred strategy. The preferred strategy, I think, is you create a new category and you you do business process innovation or business model innovation, and and it's more compelling. But when you're 23 and you're capital constrained. And you can't take too much risk on in terms of, I figured I'll take, I, I won't, didn't want to take idea risk. And at that point in time, the U.S. companies were not globalizing very quickly. So I'm like, okay, let's look at which U.S. companies I can bring to Europe, given that I, I was originally French. And looked at a lot of them. And many of them were not appropriate for me, by the way. Like Amazon, you know, you need like Billions of dollars in supply chain and logistics and payments and infrastructure. If you want to do something like e-trade, you needed like a banking license. By eBay, um, which was a marketplace, which had marketplaces of their own very specific problem of checking that egg, where you need both the supply and the demand to match. And if you can get them to work, the you get this wonderful virtuous cycle of ever more buyers brings ever more sellers, and more sellers bring ever more buyers. But the problem is, what do you start with and how do you get them to work? But it was the exact type of problem that I was specifically... Perfectly positioned to go and address because I'd studied market design in, in college. And I actually never studied it thinking it would ever be practical. But what I said, this became kind of the application of what I was studying intellectually. I was like, oh, wait, I know exactly how to do this. And and I knew, and it could, I could do it in a capital efficient way. So for a 23 year old, it was actually an appropriate business to build,
0: considering my background and skill set. And then you continued in marketplaces, right? You, you launch a few more, and now you invest. In marketplaces. So so let's talk a bit about that, right? Let's talk about... Yeah, well, I'll give you the background. So the first one, Auckland, eBay of Europe, you
1: know, I raised, I was 23, I raised like 63 million, 150 employees, grew to like 10 million a month, sold that uh, to a publicly traded competitor. Then the bubble bursts, And it's interesting because like the... And we were really in a bubble. I mean, it was getting like some binding signed term sheets from VCs I'd never even talked to. I mean, that that's like insane. Companies were worth like just a call, the email, not email, like fax. I mean, those were the ancient days, <laughs> right? Like prehistory. And and these are people I'd not even talked to. They were like binding, co- bindingly committed to invest in my company. That's insane. Evaluations were in, like the billions for companies that are not even revenues, let alone profits, no revenues. I mean, that was really a bubble. Uh, and then the, we wanted the nuclear winter of 01 after the crash, where no VC would even pick up the call. And so I came back to the and 01 and I built a company called Zingy, which was uh, selling ringtones, essentially. And it's funny because I didn't actually like ringtones. I didn't think they were a massive value add for society, but in but I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. And I was willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of being a tech entrepreneur. And that included an idea that I liked. I did, I needed an idea that was capital efficient, that I knew how to execute, that I can build without VC money. And this was the idea I picked. And this was a reverse arbitrage. I brought the idea from Europe and Asia to the US where it wasn't big and ready. And so I built a company, went from uh, a million revenues in 2002 to five and 2003 to 1504 to 200 and 2005. But the first two years were rough. I mean, I couldn't raise a single money. I invested every last money I had. I borrowed 100,000 of my credit cards. I missed payroll 23 or 27 times. At some point, I didn't pay my employees for four and a half months in a row. I mean, if you can imagine, when you don't pay people, they stop showing up for work for some reason. So we went from 27 to 7. I'd start coding again. It was a disaster. I mean, I slept on the couch at the office. Uh, the only, I could even afford coffee. So I ate ramen noodles, slept in the office, uh, showered in the office. I mean, it was pretty insane. But ultimately grabbed victory from the jaws of defeat by becoming profitable. Then I sold that company for 80 million in cash. I had uh, a little over half the company, so I did rather well. And stayed as CEO for 18 months. We were, it was the first time I was really part of a publicly traded company and dealing with SOX compliance, etc. And then in 06, went back to my first true love of marketplaces and went on to build OLX. And so OLX is the largest classified site in the world. It's uh, ten thousand employees in thirty countries. It's three hundred fifty million unique visitors a month. It's what Craigslist would be if it was run for a profit and logically with like an amazing user interface and no murders and spam and and, and prostitution and any of that stuff. And um, I grew the company. As I said, it's like the leading classified site in Brazil and Russia and Ukraine and Poland and. Uh, India, Pakistan, the UAE—basically all the emerging markets plus Portugal—and I sold it to Nasbro's or Prosys in uh, 2010, and I stayed on as CEO until 2013. But by virtue of being a visible consumer-facing internet CEO, a lot of other entrepreneurs starting asking for money and advice, and I thought long and hard: Should I invest? I mean, after all, it's distracting. I'm running a 10,000-employee company in 30 countries. Uh, but I'm like, if I can articulate a vision or a perspective or a lesson to someone, it means I've internalized it. And at the same time, meeting these young entrepreneurs allows me to put my fingers on the pulse of the market and understand the trends. And so to me, it made a lot of sense. I'm like, you know, let's do it. But because I don't have time, I'm only going to focus on marketplaces. And I'm only going to focus on or I'm going to create a set of heuristics to decide very quickly. So in 2013, I left to and at that point in time, I had made over 150 investments. I'd already started pooling my investments with my partner, Jose. And I thought it's thinking through what to do next. And actually, I tried a lot of things. I tried to convince the Castros to let me run a part of Cuba in, in a free trade zone. I tried to build a massive like off-grid community in the Dominican Republic in Cabarete. I tried. I thought of becoming a public intellectual But of all the things I tried, they kind of all failed. And the only one that worked was scaling my investing and company building abilities in a structure called FJ Labs. And FJ Labs originally was not a venture fund, it was really personal capital of of Jose and me. And in 2016, we started being approached by external investors. Who asked to co invest with us because they saw both our track record and our approach. And so we did a first official institutional fund of 50 million in 2016. That did really well with one LP, Telenor. And then in 2018, we did a second one of 175 million that also did really well. And now we're almost done deploying that and we're raising a fund three, which will be split between the pre C to A and the beyond words. It'll be about 300 million that we're raising right now. And to your point, we're mostly investing in marketplaces.
0: That being said, you also have a good number of fintech companies in your portfolio, right? I was was looking, even Ant Financial, I saw there. And you have in Latin America, you have Clark, you have Zeppelin. Maybe tell us a bit about uh, the fintech strategy.
1: So our strategy in general is to be the friendly co-investors. So we don't lead, we don't price, we don't take board seats. We decide in two one-hour meetings over a one-week period if we invest or not. And we have very clear euristics. Uh, we, We invest. Basically on the 1 hour calls we decide do we like the team which means are they visionary founders who can execute and we want people that are both articulate and can sell the company and also understand the business there and know how to execute two do we like the business which means can you build a billion dollar business here and or the unit economics theoretical or actual attractive three are the deal terms reasonable and four is it in line with our vision of where, where the future is so heading? And that future is the future of marketplaces in general, but then the future of food, the future of finance, the future of lending, the future of real estate, the real future property, et cetera. And, and so as we start doing these, you know, today we've invested about 650 companies uh, and we've had 225 exits where they realize IR of 47%. And that's over 23 years. So probably, sorry, 20, yeah, 23 years. So probably in the top 0.1% over that time period of all VCs ever. So it's working pretty well. Now, the fintech element comes because A, we have very specific vision of the future of lending, but B, because most fintechs actually, by our definition, are marketplaces. So if you're lending capital, you're typically not lending off a balance sheet. You're really an intermediary between a provider capital, which could be a high net worth or or hedge fund or, or family office or a bank ultimately, and the borrower of capital. And the borrower could be a consumer, it could be an SMB, et cetera. And so many of these, like Clarta, in our definition, are a firm, you know, the buy now paid leader companies, are marketplaces. Likewise, we're investors in a company called Clearco. They used to be called ClearBank. Clearbank logs in to the Shopify and amazon accounts of the small businesses they look at the marginal marketing profitability on a unit on a marginal contribution basis of their advertising and if they're profitable obviously i'll also log into their google and facebook they will lend them money until the point of of marginal profitability and you can imagine that no traditional bank is ever going to do that and that company just raised at like a two billion valuation and so a lot of these vertical lending businesses we've invested in. You know, we're investors in produce bay, which lends to farmers based on forecasts of the agricultural produce that they're gonna have in the future. So it's not even it's not factoring. There's no invoice yet. It's just a projection of in light of the climate that there is, what type of yields are they gonna have, and we lend them against that so they can buy the produce, etc. We're investors in a company called Mundi. It's a trade finance company between Mexico and the US. And basically, if you're a Mexican exporter, you're an SMB and you're selling products in the US to large companies, typically, you know, somewhere like Walmart, but they pay you in 45 days or actually often quarterly plus 45, like at 100 days or 120 days. And so the problem is in the meantime, you need to pay your freight forwarder, you need to pay your employees, you need to pay your, your cost of goods sold. And so, and the Mexican banks are incapable of assessing US credit risk. And so that company takes care of that. So we've done a lot of these In the fintech space. And then in addition to that, we've done non-marketplace deals that we just think are interesting. Because clearly, if you think of where is opportunity, opportunity lies where there's broken user interfaces or experiences and or where there's broken or things are more expensive than they should be, right? And think of like the banking system writ large. It's one of the places where the user experiences are the most dysfunctional. Like try calling your bank or try calling your insurance company. It is an experience that you dread opening an account in a traditional bank is so painful in terms of the paperwork you need to fill in, or try to get a mortgage and see how difficult that is and the paperwork they require. When all of this can actually be automated, it makes no sense. And also, imagine you're reasonably poor and you're more most likely than not in the U.S. unbanked or underbanked because if you're in most traditional banks they have like a $10 or $12 a month fee if you have balances below $1000 that's insane like it's it's the opposite it should be cheaper for you but obviously from a bank perspective they're like you cost me money therefore I'm charging you for it because they really don't want you as a customer but that means that a large swath of the population is unbanked or underbanked and that's why you have companies like chime or think of walla in argentina they go in and, and make it super easy for the unbanked, underbanked with no fees to create bank accounts. Or Robinhood, right? It's democratizing access to the financial system by not having fees. And so these are ma- massive segments of opportunity. They're a large percentage of the GDP with bad user experiences and great margins where you can build fantastic new businesses. And so we've been going after these opportunities uh, writ large. Yeah, plus, plus things on the blockchain.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no. Happy to say that you you've mentioned a lot of our former podcast guests, right? Uh, and and it's just such a huge space, and the traditional banking or financial sector ha- and the system has made it, I guess, expensive to be poor, right? And and exactly.
1: But frankly, the world makes it expensive to be poor. It's expensive to be poor because. It, not only do you need to pay more to have a bank account, you buy food like at the bodega, and you pay more than if you went to Costco. You pay, or you rent your room by the night, you, you know. So, but that is something that startups are actually pretty good at addressing, and so that's why I'm fundamentally optimistic about the future of humanity because the fundamental social injustice and inequality of opportunity that we're seeing, marketplace companies especially, are addressing. Because there's a swath of opportunity of solving these problems and making it better and easier for all, and not just for the elite.
0: Now, the fintech companies, right, come obviously with its own set of challenges. The bar, the minimum bar for an MVP is higher. You have to deal with a lot of regulation. From your experience, what do you think makes a fintech team, a fintech founding team, particularly good at what they do? So these are categories where the founders usually
1: come or know that and how to navigate the industry better. So it's less likely to be the twenty-one-year-old computer science graduate from Stanford that goes and creates it versus someone who actually came from the industry or has industry expertise in terms of navigating the regulations. And by the way, th- this is one category where you can't actually screw around with the regulations, right? Like in, in startups in, in general the philosophy is ask for forgiveness, not don't ask for permission, the SEC will send you to jail. Uh, so in, the, in FinTech, it's one category. It, it, if you go back in, in history to the Prosper versus London Club, right? Prosper was uh, like break things, uh, move fast, et cetera. But ultimately the SEC shut them down and London Club won because they actually went the regulated route and got permission to do what they were doing. Look, here to me, the key is access to debt, ultimately. So the founders need to, well, not all, but many, if not most of the fintech, ultimately they're lending and they're lending businesses, and you need to be, have access to debt capital. And so your story, you need to be able to weave the story that your unit economics over time are going to improve, because even though today you're getting money from whatever high net worth individuals or family offices at 15% a year... You're going to go down the path where it's going to go to 12%, then 10%, then 7%, and you need economics ultimately work. And we've seen this time and time again. Like This happens essentially in 100% of our fintech, where they start by lending off a balance sheet and equity, then they get a million-dollar credit line at like 15%, then they get a 10 million credit line at 12%, and then they get a $100 million credit line at 7% and make the economics work. And so you need to be someone that knows how to get the debt and weave the story that lets you have enough equity to cover the periods of time where your economics are going to be underwater. And more often than not, your unit economics are going to be underwater for a long time until you have the scale to have the posi- you know, that at reasonable terms. And it's not available to all founders. So for some first-time founders, it's, these are harder businesses to go after because the capital requirements are of weigh a little bit higher and the regulatory barriers are higher, but still amazing opportunities.
0: You mentioned before we started recording that you have been paying attention to DeFi uh, as well as a little bit and, and stable coins. So maybe talk a bit about that because, you know, arguably that is the future of fintech.
1: Yeah, the you can't think of fintech without thinking of, of the blockchain writ large and especially everything around Ethereum. So the way I think around about it is A, BTC specifically, It's not a currency, and and this is not unique thinking. I mean, and I wrote this blog post explaining that like five years ago, so it's not also novel, but it's really more gold. It's a store of value, and a store of value because it's deflationary in in nature, and it's highly volatile. And so it can't be used as a currency because it's too volatile to be used as a currency. But as an alternative to things like diamonds, art, and gold, does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely, right? Imagine you're in Argentina in 2000, and they decide... uh, to to convert all your dollars to, to pesos and there's nothing you can do about it. What is your alternative store value? Well, you could have gold, but physical gold is actually, can be stolen. It's heavy. It's inconvenient. Diamonds maybe, and again, they also vary in value. So it's not a coincidence that actually many of the original Bitcoin um, entrepreneurs are actually Argentine. It's people that have lived through high inflation and arbitrary confiscation of assets. And so does digital gold make, make sense? And does, Is there a use case here? Absolutely. But what's maybe even more compelling in terms of, and we're very early going down that path, is everything that's happening around Ethereum. So for me, the Ethereum ecosystem is where you're reinventing the future of finance. And there are a number of companies that that are emerging where you no longer need intermediaries. I mean, think of a company like Uniswap, where any person can actually create liquidity in any currency pool without a broker. I mean, that's super compelling. are companies like open, et cetera. So I, I think everything that's happening on Ethereum, you can imagine a, f- a future world, and right now it's only doing transactions on the blockchain, frankly, and insur- doing insurance and, and trades for crypto. But there's no reason it should be limited to that. And we're like, look, this is day zero. There's not even day one in this category. But there's no reason they couldn't actually replicate most of the functions of traditional banks from wire transfers to to collateral to you name it. So I'm very, very bullish on the category at large. And plus, it's And it's going to accelerate as national currencies go digital. I mean, we have a digital yuan already. There's going to be a digital dollar and a digital euro at some point in the future. Don't know when, but it will happen, and we'll continue to democratize those. Now, whether or not they push back on other currencies and they try to make some illegal or regulate them, et TBD. But in general, I'd say there is a future for decentralized finances that's large and coming.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. Now, Fabriz, maybe talk about some of your early mistakes, particularly as an investor. I know that you know, you, you, at one point you you, you Told me a few years ago that your first investments did not work out, right? But I guess you you've learned, or some of your first- mm, no, that's actually not no.
1: I, I you know. I actually it's the opposite for me. And way I got lucky. I made my first eight investments before in two thousand, right? And and in two thousand, but they didn't exit before. One immediately failed. So the first eight. And then in 2001, if you'd asked me how much the other seven were worth, I would have told you zero. <laughs> but ultimately, all seven successfully exited. Like years later, I get a call from a banker one day. He's like, "Hey, we need your you need your wire information or whatever." I'm like, "What? What for?" It's like, "Oh yeah, this company's going public." I'm like, "What? Really?" <laughs> and so, no, actually, seven out of eight of my first investments, I I I became I was successful in. Biggest investments. Look, I probably have made more mistakes of not investing than mistakes of investing. You know, like, uh, Mm. I look at Uber in in the early rounds and, and pass because I'm like, you know, one of my debriefs, I wrote like, I'm going to regret this decision the rest of my life, but I'm not investing because the the United economics are too underwater. They're burning too much capital, et cetera. That was Uber, and uh, and <laughs> when you start a investment memo by I'm going to regret this decision for the rest of your life, you know you're doing you know that's not the right decision. <laughs> so in the future, take heed <laughs> other mistakes. As I invested very early in Tencent, and so when they went public, uh, you know I started Beishida. I said I speak some Mandarin. I was an early investor in Baba. You know, I ended up investing, as you know, in, in financial, et cetera. So I was in Tencent early, but Tencent early was QQ, or it was, it was like ICQ. It was only a, a messenger app, there was nothing else. I mean, today it's way more than that. There's a payment system, it's a, it's a gaming platform, it's a social network. But at the very beginning, it was a messenger app like MSN Messenger or AIM or ICQ. And they go public, and they're worth like 400 million market cap. And I'm like, eh. You know, it feels fully valued. ICQ sold for like a couple hundred million. Uh, there's a real business model here. Let's sell everything. And, you know, my 50K became 1.5 million. And, you know, I was very happy. Uh, but if you look at the ticker, and I remember it very well, 0700.hk, today, the market cap is like 700 billion. You know, So I left more money on the table in that one company than I'm worth probably today. Well, not quite. But historically, I was not very thoughtful in the exits. Like if the company would go public I'm like, I'm not a public market investor. I would sell hundred percent. And these days I, I'm more careful about thinking of opportunity costs and, and IR. Like if my personal IR in FJ labs is about 47% a year. If I see, if I think that a company will continue to compound at these rates, I will, I keep it. And if not, I sell. So for instance, uh, my lockup in Airbnb is coming up soon. More likely than not, I'm going to sell them But bit more. I mean, it feels reasonably fully valued when you compare it to Expedia and Booking. There is a regulatory pressure from cities to make it more illegal. I don't love the vision of the CEO. And, and I, I guess they're focusing too much on experiences, though maybe they're dialing that back finally. And so I'm like, okay, feel is there a 10X year? You know, Maybe, but less likely. Whereas Coupang... My lockup expires, you know, like mid-September. Most likely I'll keep it and it'll be kind of a cash reserve, kind of what I did with Baba for a long time. So being more thoughtful in terms of opportunity cost of capital and future IR, companies I invested in that I shouldn't have invested in, you know, I'm not sure. No real regrets there because usually when I invest, there's a vision of what the product market fit will look like, what the economic should look like, and sometimes it doesn't play out that way. And that's okay. You know, we make we lose money on half our investments. And by the way, that's still an amazing batting average. I mean, as I said, we've invested in over 650 companies.
0: How about emerging markets, right? I mean, you, you've been investing in emerging markets for a long time, but it's only now that we're starting to see. take a region like Latin America, we're starting to see you know, this extremely dynamic ecosystem. What's your take of the region?
1: Yeah, so, so the beauty of my mandate and our mandate at FJ Labs is that it's highly flexible. We changed the geography based on our reading of the tea leaves of where the macro is heading. And so in 2010, we were very active. And frankly, in the mid-2000s to 2012 in Latin America, but also in Turkey and in Russia. And then uh, a combination of things happened in the early 2010s where... Erdogan was elected president of Turkey and the Islamification of Turkey led to negative macro consequences, which I thought would lead to negative micro consequences. So we kind of stopped investing, but the early investments we had ended up doing really well. Russia, same thing. When uh, Putin invaded Crimea, we stopped investing because we we felt it would scare off the big American investors and we needed them to do the following. We had a company worth hundreds of millions that essentially failed because the American VCs stopped funding it because they got frightened of, of the geopolitical Environment. And then when Dilma Rousseff became uh, president of Brazil, we also uh, slowed down our investing. And then we re accelerated once we saw the changes happening in Brazil. And Brazil has been treating us extremely well. I mean, in the last year, we've had three IPOs. We had Milius, which we came in at the very, very beginning, where we're over 100 extra investment since it went public. I mean, since from beginning to when it went public, we were in Enjoy, we were in uh, in Infra Commerce. And so We've done really, really well. And, and and what's interesting is there's been a democratization of tech in Latin America. It used to be Brazil. It used to be only Brazil. You know, Mercado Libre, the entire business was worth it. Was, <laughs> the valuation was all Brazil. And when you looked at all the tech startups that were getting funded and all the VCs that were creating, like the or Redpoint e Ventures, they were all Brazil. Today, we're now, because of Rappi, which came out of Colombia, we're seeing now a big ecosystem of tech in Colombia. We're now seeing a lot of startups in, in Mexico, in fintech especially, there's been a big emergence of neobanks all around the region, from Clara to Neobank to Nubank, et cetera, so to Walla. And so there's been an d- explosion of tech across the region, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah. And um, you know it doesn't go unnoticed that you have also started hosting your own podcast right? Playing with unicorns and you're bringing people from, you know, from different uh, spectrums for the different uh, roles, right? Um, why do you enjoy, you know, hosting your your show?
1: Yeah, so my show is a little bit different. Uh, it, it's less ha- the guests of the week. Sometimes we have guests. It's been more a lesson to teach. It's more like things I wish I knew when I was starting out as an entrepreneur that I now know. And so each one of them is like, how do you build an MVP? Another one is like, how do you come up with a business idea? Another one is like, how do you evaluate the business idea? And we have guests who talk about those concepts. And then in addition to that, we have like successful founders and entrepreneurs. But a lot of it is, frankly, presentation of knowledge that we've accumulated. And frankly, it's fun. Often you're writing, sharing, and thinking these knowledge internally within FJ Labs. And I figure I might as well make it available to the world. And also, as a, it's a repository of data because founders keep asking me the same questions over and over again. And so, this is a great way to like point them, and it makes my time more scalable. I can say when people were like, "Okay, how do I know if my idea is good or not? How do I validate it?" Then there's a show. Like, how do you validate your business idea? How do you do a TV advertising or online marketing or whatever? Like all these things, I'm creating little showcases to direct people to to them. You know, how do you write a deck to pitch VCs? Every founder has that need. And no one's like put out, out there what the best practices are. And so I'm doing it both in block form and podcast format or live streaming show. And, and yeah, it's fun. And then I have like the best founders of the portfolio come and talk about their experiences. And, and it's been super fun.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's great. And, and there's definitely a lot of value in evergreen content. A, a lot of our interviews, you know, they're kind of pointing in time and it's a great story, but some of it feels outdated a, a year or two later. So we're trying to, Focus uh, into more evergreen, right? Which is which is very valuable. So, Fabrice, how about the, the next few years? How do you envision AFJ Labs uh, continuing to grow?
1: Well, as I said, Fund Two was 175 million. Now we're trying to raise like 300 million for Fund Three, doing more of the same, just so, you know slightly larger checks. Uh, I mean, Fund Three will probably still be combined like 450 investments. So we were we were super prolific. This year has been more. We've been more prolific than ever before. The first four months of the year, we made 70 investments. It's like a 210-company run rate, which is insane. Now I think it'll slow down a bit because it slows down in the summer, usually. It slows down in December, usually. So, you know, we'll probably won't cross the 200-company-invested mark. That would be pretty insane. But, you know, keep keep using... Look, at the end of the day, I'm mission-driven. Like, why do any of this? I want to harness the deflationary power of technology and its ability to improve user experiences in order to address two of the world's biggest problems today, which I think were, on the one hand, social injustice and inequality of opportunity, which we've discussed, and on the other hand, climate change. And as long as I find other mission-driven entrepreneurs who use technology to address these problems, I want to keep backing them. And so there's not more of the same at a larger scale, I guess, is what I would say.
0: And well, before we let you go, for the last question, we love to ask everyone that stops by Maybe tell us some of uh, your hobbies. I know you you're you're a man of many many interests and hobbies. Uh, maybe you can share some. I have
1: possibly too many hobbies. Uh, I <laughs> I kitesurf. I heli ski. I play tennis really rather well. I play padel, the the Spanish or Argentine sport. Uh, I read a lot, over a book a week. I love writing. <laughs> I love uh, I, I love writing write, writing my show. So, yeah, m- rather many hobbies, but, um, and yeah, traveling the world, like sometimes I like going camping in the middle of nowhere with nothing, except a tent, a backpack and a, wa- a sleeping bag and a water filtration system. So I think diversity of interests is one of the things that defines
0: me and and trying new things, basically. Well, amazing. Well, Fabrice, I know you've stopped by Wharton several times. So we, we hope to see you again, uh, post pandemic. And Thanks for stopping by the show. Really, really fascinating chat. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, Please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.